0: Father, you've been so good to us. You have blessed us so that we could be here today, so that we could worship you. And uh, I pray, Lord, as we open the word, as I bring the message, as everyone receives it, that you will be glorified and that your spirit will come upon us and rest upon us, Lord, and that we will be able to worship during this time and in the Lord's Supper. In Christ's name, amen. In the early 1700s, two young men named John Leonard Dobert and David Nitzman went to church one morning in a small German village called Hernhut. They heard a visitor speak that morning about the thousands of slaves in the West Indies that had never heard the gospel. Both men were determined to take the gospel, to take the gospel message to the West Indies as soon as they could prepare. Friends tried to convince them not to go. They would say, go back, back to Hernhut. There is danger and death ahead. They refused to listen. They only had $7 between them at the time. And a friend asked what they were going to do and how they were going to live when they got there. They said they would sell themselves into slavery if they had to. They were willing to give up their very lives for Christ. As the boat pulled away from the dock and they were sailing to the West Indies, one of the men was heard shouting, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. This shout became the missionary call for their denomination, the Moravian Brethren. A denomination and missionary movement that would later spark the modern missions movement that we see today in the 19th and 20th centuries. What would be worth so much to these two young men? What would be worth so much to them they would give up everything, their families, their jobs, their very lives as slaves, if necessary? Well, to answer that question, let's look at Revelation chapter 5 this morning. Particularly verses 9 and 10, but I'm going to read the whole chapter so you can get the context. Because there is a lot going on here in this book of revelation and we're just dropping right into the to the center of it revelation chapter 5 starting in verse 1 i saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals and i saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne. "...with the four living creatures, and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints." And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked. And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying... To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. In verses 9 and 10, we just read of a new song that is being sung. A worship service in heaven that's taking place in the throne room of God. What a glorious scene this is to take a look in. To the throne room of heaven. The participants in this heavenly worship are four living creatures and 24 elders. The living creatures are described here earlier in the book of Revelation. They're also, I think, the same ones in the book of Ezekiel, the ones with four different faces. And it's an exalted order of angels that constantly serve God, they constantly fall down before Him, they're constantly in worship to Him, and they're always moving around the throne when we see them in the Bible. The other group of singers, the other group in this choir, are the 24 elders. I think the 24 elders represent the raptured church. Because earlier in chapter 4, we see that these elders are sitting on thrones. And they're wearing white garments. And they also have a golden crown on their heads. And the creatures and the elders are singing a new song. One that's never been heard on heaven, in heaven or on earth before. Now, what's the reason for this new song? Well, the reason is that someone has been found worthy to break the seals and open the book that's been presented in God's right hand. The book here is an ancient scroll written on the front and the back. It's God's title deed, his deed to all the earth. And it's secured with seven wax seals. So whenever a will in Roman times was given and made, they would take a scroll and roll it up. And then they would seal it with seven wax seals down the side to close it up. And then seven different witnesses would put their imprint or their ring or their signet uh, ring on there as a witness to the testimony and truth of that will. And so, as God has presented this deed, there's no one worthy to break the seals and open it. The breaking of each seal is going to enact a judgment upon the earth in the great tribulation. So as each seal is open, in Revelation, you see the judgments are poured out upon the earth. And then when all the seals are broken, the one who opens it will claim his rightful inheritance to the earth. Who is worthy? Who can be found? At first, no one in creation can be found to open the seal. Worthy here means having a high degree of comparable worth Value, merit. Who has enough value in God's eyes to bring about his judgments upon the earth? Who has enough value and merit to bring about God's kingdom on the earth as it is in heaven? Who can bring all of human history to its appointed end? There is only one person found in heaven at this time who is worthy. The Lion of Judah. John is told to stop weeping because the lion can open the scroll. But then when he looks up, what does he see? A lamb. He expects to see this massive, victorious, powerful lion, but he sees a lamb, a gentle lamb, standing as if slain. But this is no ordinary lamb, is it? As you can see by its description in verse 6, with all the sevens and seven horns and seven eyes, this is the all-powerful, all-knowing Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But what makes Jesus Christ worthy to open the scroll? there are many answers we could give as we think about what the Bible teaches of Jesus, about Jesus, who He is, and what He did. But we're given three specific reasons in verses 9 and 10. Three reasons that Christ is worthy to open it. The very first reason, look at verse 9, is because He was slaughtered for our sins. It says, Worthy are you to take the book. And break its seals because you were slain. Literally in the Greek, slain means for you were slaughtered, violently killed, and sacrificed. The idea in the Bible of a sacrificial lamb points back to the Exodus with the nation of Israel. Do you remember when they had to take the lamb into their home for four days? It almost became a little pet to to the children, I'm sure. And then on that fourth day, they had to slice its neck take the blood and rub it on the doorposts and why did they have to do that so that when God came through killing the firstborn in Egypt he would pass over those homes he would pass over the Israelites over 700 years before Christ he was prophesied to be a Passover lamb turn to Isaiah chapter 53 I'm sure many of you are familiar with Isaiah 53. And let's look at what Isaiah had to say about the lamb. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. 700 years before Christ came to this earth. Isaiah said the lamb would be slaughtered. The suffering servant would be slaughtered. Would be slaughtered for our sins. Jesus also in the New Testament links himself up with the Passover lamb when they're in the upper room the night before his crucifixion and they're going through the Passover feast. And in the Passover feast, you would have different parts of the feast that you would celebrate different acts of God in the Exodus. And when it came to the part where they're supposed to remember the lamb and they're supposed to drink a cup of wine to the lamb, what does Jesus say? This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many For forgiveness of sins. By putting a sign, by putting his blood in the place of the Passover lamb, he's basically saying, I am the Passover lamb. That's what Jesus is saying there to the disciples. That's why John the Baptist said early in Jesus' ministry, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ is our slaughtered lamb do you recoil when you hear the word slaughtered it's not a term that we use a lot when we talk about christ but it's important to remember because he didn't just die a natural death so we can't say he just died because he was actually slaughtered he didn't die a noble death in battle he was killed After being beaten, hidden, scourged, and a crown of thorns pressed down on his head, he was nailed to a Roman cross. So he didn't just die. He was slaughtered. But death did not conquer him. Go back to verse 6 in Revelation. Revelation 5, verse 6. John tells us that he looks up and he sees a lamb standing as if slain. The Christ was truly slain, but here when he sees this image in heaven, this vision, the Lamb is alive and standing in the throne room of God. This means we don't worship a dead Savior. He's not still on the ground. He's not still in the tomb. He's been raised, and he's reigning at the right hand of God as we speak. Now if you're here today, and you're not a Christian, you have not come to Christ and put your faith and repented of your sins and put your faith in Him, I urge you, come. He was slain for sinners just like me and you. Wouldn't you want to come and be part of this heavenly scene where they worship the Lamb? Because the only other alternative in Revelation is the wrath of of the Lamb. You either worship the Lamb in this new song or you undergo the wrath of the Lamb on the earth. So I beg you, if you do not know Christ today, just like that last song that we sang, come, come to Him. He's never turned anyone away. He's never turned anyone away. Come to Him and put your trust in Him. Don't run away from Christ. Run to Him. The second reason that Christ is worthy to open the scroll is also given in verse 9. Look at the last part. He purchased for God a people. The word purchase here means to secure someone, to buy them, to ransom them, to redeem them. It's it's the same Greek word that Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you have been bought with a price. There was a price paid for our salvation. This is slave market language. So when you were in the ancient Roman and Greek world and you couldn't pay your debts, there was no bankruptcy court. You couldn't just go file for bankruptcy. You went and sold yourself into slavery so that you could pay your family's debts. Otherwise, you were going to die or one of your family members was going to die. This is what Christ did for us. He bought us back from slavery. Because the only way to get out of ancient slavery was if someone came and paid your debts off and set you free. And this is what Christ has done for us. He purchased us. He paid the price to God, the Father, whose justice demanded payment because there must be a penalty for our sins. This payment to God freed us. It emancipated us from bondage to sin and bondage and slavery to Satan. Mark 10.45 reads, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. We now belong to Christ. We're now slaves of Christ. We're no longer slaves of Satan. If you're in Christ here today, you're no longer a slave to Satan or a slave to sin. You're now a slave to Christ with a new Lord and Master. It's important to notice here, too, that he purchased for God. This is a definite transaction. The death of Christ on the cross to save sinners didn't just make it possible for you to be saved. He didn't just make it hypothetical, hoping that someday you might be saved. He actually paid the full fee. There was a finality to his purchase. It was an exact atonement, an exact payment on the cross. He actually paid the price in full. There wasn't any, he wasn't short of change. And we needed to somehow give him a little help and give some change to make it complete. I don't know about you, but when I come to communion, having this thought in my mind makes it that much more special to me. When I look upon the bread and remember his body, when I look upon the juice and remember his blood, it was actually shed for me and if you're in Christ it was shed for you and you can think of that he actually knew your name and laid down his life and paid in full for you at that moment makes communion so much more to me it was all the work of God here It was the work of God. He demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And what was the payment? What does verse 9 say that he paid the ransom with? With your blood. Not by his strength, not by his power, not by his authority, his dominion. He could have used any of those things, but he paid with his blood. The Lamb of God purchased for God a people with his blood, his death upon the cross. When blood is mentioned in the New Testament, it's not like his blood was magical and if you had some splashed on you, you would be saved. It's a quick reference to his death, the shedding of his blood as he died on the cross. This is what Jesus meant when he said, I have purchased someone from every tribe and tongue and people and nation with his very life. He did that. Look at the rest of verse 9. A death that brought men from out of every tribe, tongue, people and nation. Notice it says from at the beginning, right? Literally in the Greek it means taken out of, a part of the whole. Tribes represent genealogical descent. So the family heritage that you were born in tongues here represent the different languages in the world peoples are the different ethnic groups and nations are various national identities what's being said here is no matter how you cut it up in society and in the world Christ has purchased from out of all those groups a people for himself and for God this is what Jesus meant when he said I have other sheep which are not of this fold I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. So what we see in verse 9 is that God the Father appointed His Son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's the heart of the gospel right there. That is the heart of the gospel, the true gospel, which needs to return to the churches and our land and in our nation. I was at a Bible conference earlier this week listening to Dr. Al Mohler speak. And Dr. Mohler is a, an intellectual giant in the evangelical church today. You may have heard of him. He's the president of Southern Seminary. And when it came time for Q&A, I said to Dr. Mohler, what's the biggest challenge that the church faces from the outside? And he said, without a doubt, today, it is that we need to learn how to speak to a post- Christian society. How to evangelize a post Christian society. Because he said, everyone thinks they know what Christianity is. Everyone thinks they've already tried it and it didn't work for them. And I would agree with him. It's not just a problem I think we have in the South where people think they're saved because they know the gospel, but they don't actually know and believe and trust in the gospel. I saw this in Southern California. And one of the worst places you could probably be, I was in the L.A. County Jail doing a Bible study. And these guys are rough guys. And to stand up and preach the word in front of them is, is challenging. But it's good practice. And uh, many of the guys I worked uh, with through the Bible study w- were just so interested in learning God's word. They thought they knew what it said, but they hadn't really read it and studied it. So we spent 12, 13, 14, 15 weeks and we came to the very last day of this program. And I preached and taught on good fruit versus bad fruit. And here's how you can rest assured if you're saved by looking at the fruit in your life. I showed all the verses. And then we broke out into small groups. And we had about 15 guys in our group. And my my partner sat down. and He really shocked me. He said, okay guys, We're going to go around the group and every one of you is going to tell me if you're saved or not and why you think you're saved. And that included me. I had to do that too. And let me tell you, that was eye-opening because I thought, here we are in the L.A. County jail, the largest prison system in the world with 20,000 incarcerated men and women. And 14 out of 15 guys said they were saved. They had been for most of their life. And when it came to why they thought they were saved, all kinds of different answers like, I was baptized as a kid. I went to church with my grandma as a kid. I grew up a Christian. I said this prayer. I walked forward just on and on and on around the group. Friends, that's not why we're saved. None of those things are the reason why we're saved. We are saved because Christ purchased us on his death on the cross baptism good works good fruit all of that does not save us it is only by the blood of christ only christ's work on the cross that sets us free and ransoms us from the domain of darkness we cannot add to that and i told those men that as well the third reason that christ is worthy is in verse 10. Look at verse 10. He has made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Remember the context of this verse in Revelation. The church has been raptured. The church age is over. There's been a rapture, and they're sitting there worshiping the Lamb who's about to open the scrolls. And what are the scrolls going to do? They're going to enact His judgments. They're going to enact the tribulation upon the earth, the seven-year tribulation. So what John is seeing hasn't happened yet. He's looking into the future. And so that's why there's a past tense. You have made them to be a kingdom. This doesn't include the tribulation saints either. If you flip over to verse, uh, chapter 7 of Revelation. Look at seven nine. This is not everyone who will be in heaven. That we're looking at in verse 5. This is... This is the church age. In 7-9 you see now the tribulation saints. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne before the Lamb. And then down in verse 13, uh, one of the elders says, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him. So in, back in five we're looking at the church age that's been raptured and is now in heaven, represented by the 24 elders. But look at the tents at the very end of, of verse 10. The very end of verse 10. They will reign. Future tense. So he's made them a kingdom, but they're actually not reigning yet. They will reign. Because what has to happen before they can reign? The kingdom has to come. Which means the tribulation has to come as well. All of verse 10 alludes back to the purpose for why God has chosen Israel in the Old Testament. You remember when Gary Morris came last week? And he talked to us about Exodus 19.6. That's the statement or purpose for Israel. God chose Israel to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's why he chose them. That's the purpose he had in mind for the nation of Israel, which they did not fulfill. Peter said the same thing about the church. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he said, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. This means that we, as Christians, will reign with Christ upon the earth. The concept of reigning in the New Testament is always used when dealing with kings. So this verse is basically saying we'll be like kings with Christ and his kingdom. What that looks like, I don't know. But how glorious is it just to think that we're going to reign with him and his kingdom upon the earth. We will also be priests. That's what's in the second part there. We will be a kingdom and priests to our God, Before we can serve God, there must be a cleansing that takes place, a consecration. We must be purified. And in the Old Testament, there were very specific rules for how you would be purified and made ready to be a priest. First, you had to be born of the tribe of Levi. And then you had to go through all the sacrifices and washings and everything to symbolize being purified of your sin. You had to be consecrated. But under the new covenant with Christ... His blood has consecrated us and we are made priests to God by the sacrifice that he made and the purchase that he made for us. You see, if you look at 9 and 10, it really flows. First he was slain, that purchased us, and then we were made to be a kingdom and priest to our God. He died so that God would have a holy kingdom and he died so that God would have a priesthood to serve him. Not to serve ourselves or to serve our own kingdoms that we want to make. There's nowhere in this text that says the primary purpose of Christ's death was for our joy in this life or for our health in this life or for our best life now or prosperity that we may have. Yeah, we may have those things in this life. He may bless us with those things. And he'll certainly bless us with those things in the next at the resurrection. But that's not in this verse, is it? Who, who is in mind here? Who is Christ doing this for? For God. Right? Look at verse 9. Purchased for God. Verse 10. Priest and kingdom to our God. Yeah, we'll have many things. We'll be blessed with many things. But that's not the primary goal of what Christ did. The primary reason that Christ died was to glorify God. To glorify God, not to glorify us. The center of the universe doesn't run through our lives. Yes, we're brought in, but that's a byproduct, not the primary product. That's what Paul meant when he said, For from him and through him and to him are all things. Christ's death consecrated us to be in God's kingdom, to reign with Christ and to serve him as a priest. Now that the song has ended, the creatures and the elders have stopped singing. John looks again in verse 11. And all the angels in heaven join in. So many angels that John cannot count them all. Myriads in Greek just means countless numbers. Literally it meant 10,000. But then when you had more than 10,000, you didn't have a number to say. So you would just say myriads. And look, it says myriads of myriads. 10,000 times 10, times 10,000. Countless times countless. And then on top of that, another 1,000 times a 1,000. We're talking billions of angels show up to worship the Lamb. And if that wasn't enough, look at verse 13. Every living creature in the sky and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea joins in and praises God the Father and His Son, the risen Lamb. This worship was due to the Lamb because He was the only one. The only one who could open the scrolls. The only one who could break its seals. The only one who could read it. The only one who could bring about God's judgment on the earth. His purposes on the earth. His kingdom on the earth. All the angels worship Christ in heaven because what he did for us, his sheep. Christ didn't purchase the angels and billions and billions, probably every angel in heaven is here worshiping him. And what did he do for them compared to what he did for us? He didn't didn't get slaughtered for them. He wasn't emancipating them. He hadn't consecrated them. Yet they all worshiped him. They held him up of great worthiness, incalculable worth. The angels are worshiping Christ for his worth. What's he worth to you? What's Christ worth to you in your life? He was worth everything to another missionary named Adorinam Judson, who was the first missionary from America in the 1800s. This man converted out of atheism, wanted to dedicate his life to take the gospel to India. And before he left, he sent a letter to his future father in law because he had met a girl and wanted to get married, and he wanted to ask the father's hand in marriage. The lady's name was Anne, and he sent a letter to Anne's dad. It read, I have now to ask you whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure for a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. He continued, Can you consent to all this for the sake of Him who left His heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls? For the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to give your daughter to all this in hope of soon meeting her in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior? from heathens that are saved, through her means, saved from eternal woe and despair. Anne's father consented to the marriage, and two weeks later they left after they were married and went to India. As the letter proved to be true, her father never saw her again in this world. She died on the mission field in Burma, after a two-year illness and losing three children, when her husband died many years later, though, there were 8,000 believers in the country of Burma in a hundred churches as a result of their sacrifice. You see, this man and his wife and even his father-in-law knew what Christ was worth to them. So the question I want to leave you with this morning to ask yourself is, what is Christ worth? To me, what is he worth to me in my life? What is he worth to me when I take this cup and when I break this bread in just a few mom- moments? Let us pray Father, Jesus Christ is worth so much to us. Let us see. That Let us see his glory. Let us know that we can trust in him for all things and that we can give all things for him, Lord. Everything in our life must be dedicated to him. Lord, the whole universe revolves around Jesus Christ. And press upon our hearts that truth, that reality. Make it known to us, Lord. If we're here today and we're saved... Lord, just help us to put Christ on the highest pedestal in our life and never take him down. And those, Lord, who are not saved here today, let them just see the worthiness of Christ. Let them know in their own hearts that they can come to you and ask for forgiveness. Lord, be with us as we now worship the slain lamb in the Lord's Supper. In Christ's name, amen.